0: And good good morning. In today's podcast, we'll be joined by Evan Dean. And I'm just linking Evan in now. Evan is an investigator at the Beach Center on Disability and and assistant professor at the Department of Occupational Therapy uh, Education. And will be joining us today to discuss self-determination, careers, and supported decision-making. This is an important topic um, going forward because, obviously, one of the things we're trying to do with, uh, in any society is create people that are more self-determined. In other words, they take control um, of their future, and to me, that is one of the one of the elements that underpins choice and control. The fact, the ability to be able to, to self-determine, to act as a causal agent uh, in your life. So, Evan will be joining us shortly. Uh, hopefully, he's just got the link um, and he will be, Yep, yep Evan, as I can see online, Evan is joining us right now. So hopefully any second now, Evan will appear in my headphones and we'll be off and running. So not too much silence today. We've done a good job of testing the tech and Evan, welcome. Hey, Peter. How are you? I'm good, my friend. I'm good. So the tech work for us, straight and straightforward. So we're in business. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, the notion of self-determination then, uh, is obviously vitally important, particularly when we talk about transitions and and uh, careers. Um, what is your work telling you? and Where is it taking you in this area?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point, that self-determination has... Um, been shown to be so Im- important in this work. Um, so uh, w- one of the things that, that uh, we've really been focusing on um, is, uh, so the, the model that we use is called the Self-Determined Career Design Model, uh, which is really about, um, you know, uh, it's really about like designing a career. So the, the, what the model does is supports people to go through three phases where they're really setting goals uh, related to the uh, the jobs and careers that they want, um, they're developing action plans to address barriers um, to meet those goals, and then they're reflecting on that process um, and then revising goals or action plans as needed.
0: Right. So, so when you look at it from from the perspective of how um, shall we say modern employment services work, which is effectively about find someone a job as quick as possible, and that seems to be the end of the equation. Whereas in reality, what we're doing here is we're saying, well, no, hang on a second. You know, rather than a job and when people get develop certain skills in their job, they go, okay, where's the next transition for me? What we're really saying is, okay, let's think about a career and where the jobs are going to take us and what do we need to pursue that career?
1: Yeah, and that's a great point. So we've started using the term career design when we're talking about this to to move away from that kind of traditional career development mindset. So the term career design um, came out of um, uh, international theories out of vocational counseling called life design and career construction. Uh, and so we kind of adapted life design for a more uh, career focus. Um and you're, you're exactly right. One, uh, one of the reasons that um, we recognized a need for this uh, move to a career design standpoint is because, you know, so much of the work for people with, with uh, intellectual disability around jobs and careers is really about developing this, um, supporting people to develop these employment skills, which I put in air quotes because I, I'm not exactly sure what, what those uh, employment skills are. But somewhere, uh, you know, people uh, try to develop these employment skills so that a person can become successful in work. And then once they learn those skills, we can support them to find a job. And once they get a job, then we can move on to the next person to find a job. But Right, which is
0: very much a yeah. short-term, short-term approach to it. I mean, which, which realistically yeah. is not the fault of the people doing the work. It's simply the structure of the systems they have to work in.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah. So that's why we really want to focus on developing a a new framework that really, um, you know, like you said, focuses much more on really developing like a career identity. Um, So thinking about, you know, most people that have careers today, um, it's not that traditional mindset of I get a job, I work that job for as long as I possibly can until I retire. But it's really about people having multiple jobs changing those jobs and developing an identity um, based off of, you know, reflections from those job experiences. And those reflections inform the next steps to to people's work. So it requires a much more long-term commitment and long-term relationship with the person.
0: Which which in itself signals that we have to change the way we deliver employment services from there's very much a short term. And when I say short term, most employment supports generally disappear after two years or whenever the milestones that providers get payments for are reached and then the person is largely off by themselves. So it really shifts the focus, which also then maybe tells us that the policy settings are wrong as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. So, you know, we're um, I mean, we're um, a research center. So, you know, we're really trying to kind of just help establish the foundation that we're going to have better employment outcomes uh, when we take this longer term approach and this longer term approach better supports people. But, yeah, the funding structures um, and the policy uh, for these is still uh, still needs to be developed.
0: I'm looking at the manuscript you sent me um, for the book chapter that you guys were writing, Um, and there's a quote here from Civicus in 2005 that says, careers do not unfold. They are constructed as individuals make choices that express their self-concepts and substantiate their goals in the societal, social reality of a work role. And when I look at that, I think, okay, this goes to the idea of, Maybe one of the things we're really trying to achieve through self-determination and certainly through our career design is to is to support an individual to develop that the notion of self-empowerment so that they really take control of the process. And what we do as as employment people technically is simply go along with them or provide the necessary supports at certain junctures when they need it.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I'll give you an example of of a, uh, a young person I worked with, uh, who happened to have autism, but, um, was also, uh, so he dropped out of high school, um, because of, uh, you know, this, the competing social demands and everything, but wanted to go to college and like read college textbooks and things like that for fun. Um, and, uh, but he was at, he was at a place where he knew that that was his goal, and there were so many barriers in his way that he couldn't actually. He needed a structure to really think through. Okay, what do I need to what do I need to do first in order to work that my way to that larger goal of of going to college, and so you know a self determination framework where we're really talking about you know helping people develop the goal setting problem solving skills that they need that can be um, used in any kind of setting, you know, it was really what he needed. Like he needed um, a structure that he could use to uh, to really problem solve some of those um, barriers that, that were coming up in his way.
0: Right. I've just had a question asked of me, one of our listeners, and uh, they've asked about how do we go about working with a family that's not fully supportive of the person moving forward, and that's obviously something we see a lot because families, because of the security blanket they put around their 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 kids. How do we work with that? How do we move the family along as well to be supportive of the, an employment proposition?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, and I think I think it's really important that we honour uh, the family's perspective and kind of where they are because they have um, obviously much more experience with the person and, and have, um, you know, um, developed their perspective through, through a lot of interactions, both with the person and also with the system and society and, and things like that. Um, So one of the things uh, we, we did a study where we were supporting um, youth with autism in their home. So uh, the parents were pretty heavily involved in that. And we, Uh, we encountered a a range of um, uh, parenting uh, support strategies within that. Some that would just leave the room and say, you know, they've got it. uh, Just talk to them, whatever they, uh, you know, whatever they say, Um, all the way to like kind of being there uh, next to the person where the, uh, the person is looking at the parent for confirmation uh, for whatever they're saying. And in those cases, um, uh, one, I, I don't think that's necessarily limited to, uh, to families uh, that, that have that perspective that people need to be over-supported. Uh, but so when we encounter, whether it's family or maybe direct support staff or uh, people that are um, what I call oversupporting, uh, we might ask to say like, you know, we really want this to be from the person and their perspective. And we'll actually ask them to like, can we have this time with the person here to really, um, to really talk through what they want, what their interests are, what their strengths are, and then we'll we'll invite that person back towards the end because we really want their perspective too, um, but uh, but not at the expense of of the person. So we've really tried to negotiate some some time to so that they can they feel like they know what's going on in the process and know um, that they're being heard also, but that. That the person is really the driving force here,
0: right? That, that takes me to an interesting example that uh, we worked with um, kids in a high school um, a couple of years mm-hmm. ago uh, in another state, and we used the process of self-guided discovery. So the kids were were really running this process, and and in that sense, we kind of sidestepped the teachers, and the teachers got to watch because they were in a way reluctant. Um, but what we, we allow the kids to, to run it to be educated and then determine what work experiences they wanted. and we supported those experiences. And what we found was that as that after the work experiences and we documented these processes, we started to involve the families, brought them in, back into the school system, and the families were generally quite surprised at, at their kids' capacity. Um, you know, they went from "I oh, know we can't do that" to "Well, I didn't know they could do that," uh, and to me, that illustrated the value in in educating families and getting them to be an active participant in the process, so that they drive it along um, rather than us external folk.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a great point. Well, we've done some things too where we videotape people um, in employment settings just so. The parents and other supporters can can see them succeeding. Uh, that same thing, just trying to change that mindset, showing people um, in moments of success. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's a good point. The, the video, and I, I know that one of the things that we did also was we videotape them. We videotape kids doing things. That, and I'll be honest with you, I'm I'm I shouldn't be amazed, but I'm constantly amazed at the at the supposed limitations kids have, but they don't. Uh, I, I wonder sometimes, as part of the process of of moving forward, that security blanket actually hinders the the, the forward movement. So it makes the whole idea of of introducing the the notion of self determination, self empowerment into into the family somewhat problematic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I I always remember a quote from a mentor of mine, uh, Mike Weymeyer, who. Uh, did a lot of the early um, conceptual and intervention and uh, work in this area. And I remember him saying one time that no matter how much we expect out of people, like that we want to hold high high expectations and no matter how much we expect, people are going to surprise us by doing more.
0: Yeah, very much so. Um, so
1: it raises the next
0: point when we're looking at the research and certainly the discussions you and I were having in what, August last year yeah. around the uh, causal agency theory, which I found to be really quite brilliant and and really underpinned a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment. That seems to be something that's that, whilst we probably have known it for years, we've really not given it any prominence. Um, where are you going with that sort of work?
1: With causal agency theory?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think causal agency theory is, is really the, the backbone to, to all of the work that we, we're doing. You know, we've um, um, mainly Kerry uh, Shogren, uh, who, who I work closely with, and and Mike waymeyer developed uh, assessments uh, related to it um, to really think like, you know, so causal agency theory being um, the idea that um, that self-determined action is, um, is really kind of governed by uh, or is really described as being goal oriented, initiated by the person and done with the belief that actions will produce desired change. Um, And so it's really the backbone of of the work that we're doing. Um, The um, self-determined career design model that we've uh, talked about um, is really kind of broken into really looking at setting goals, Um, you know, having the person set goals and initiate uh, that action, um, you know, and setting action plans and then, uh, reflecting on that, which really gets at that belief piece. Um, so, I mean, I think we're, we're still refining that. We're still learning a lot about that process. The more we measure and the more we, um, uh, study interventions and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's critical. Um,
0: You've got an interesting piece written again in the draft, and I, I'm really sorry if I keep quoting your draft back at you. But <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, good, to it's remind a good me. <laughs> Hey, get it finished, will you? Um, <laughs> you, you? There's a piece here you've written, where it says a career design approach places emphasis on self-evaluation on, and on the meaning that a person creates at adverse employment and life experiences and that understanding a person's narrative, i.e., um, what they have done, what have they learned from the experiences, where do they want to go with central and aids in the development and continual refinement of a career identity. And I think that one, you know, when I look at that, that points to a couple of things, obviously, from my perspective, as you know, obviously we use discovery in our work and employment. And it seems to me that by using work experiences to create that narrative and using that narrative as part of the design process, it it reinforces, my, my suspicion is that it reinforces in the individual their actual capacity for, greater, for greatness or greatness that maybe has been missing from the supports or, or the identity that's been created around them as a person with a disability.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I kind of describe it uh, in very simple terms and, of doing, reflecting, and revising. Um, related to that design process, but in, and and I think the uh, um, the uh, the the process you guys use is critical, especially for that doing, um, and and then uh, I mean I mean I know you guys build in the reflecting and everything too, but I mean I, I think so much of, of people who go out and have a work experience and it doesn't go well for whatever reason. And then they're like put on the the, you know, put on the back of the list until somebody has a chance to to work with them again. And they're missing out on all that reflecting all, all they know is that they failed in employment um, instead of really thinking through, like, uh, why was that? Well, you know, was it the boss or was it the environment or was it that you just didn't really like the job?
0: Right, because often with work experiences, if there's a negative experience or, or maybe an aberrant behaviour because there was a trigger in the environment, it's automatically gone, okay, this person may or, may or may not be able to work, when in reality, if we dig deeper, it's probably because we missed something or we didn't have the appropriate support. But that said, each of those failures is a learning thing because we know that 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 during work experience, an individual will develop some skills that they'll retain. So maybe what we've done is, is when we haven't really focused on what the positive outcome was, which then leads us to the next work experience, which we should be able to refine with better supports and have a clearer understanding of, of that direction. We're not listening.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's really a process that we all use in our life. So I'm a researcher, so I, you know, write a lot of manuscripts and, Obviously, as you pointed out, not, not all of them are published yet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. My list is just as long. <laughs> but, yeah, but you know, uh, to me, it's, it's really thinking, you know, w- when something gets rejected, which every bit, all researchers' manuscripts get rejected at times, it's really that we haven't found the right, the right journal, the right fit for that. I think it's the same for people looking uh, for jobs. You know, when, when a job fails, it's that there wasn't a good fit. And figuring out why it wasn't a good fit is the critical piece.
0: Right. I just had an interesting question posed to me, um, and that is that um, what about when we're working with people that are maybe over the age of 35, Um you know, is there, is there a difference in how we approach a younger person versus an older person, uh, maybe a, an older person that might have been in an ADE or sheltered workshop setting?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, so in my experience, and this is, um, as I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know, but it's, it's almost kind of backwards, that it's almost um, people that are older maybe have had even fewer opportunities than younger people. To uh, explore employment. So I think, uh, you know, spending a lot more time on that discovery phase um, and not, you know, giving people a chance to uh, shadow different jobs and try things out and really figure out what it is that they want to do just takes that much longer. But I think you're right.
0: And I think it's probably also illustrative of the fact that maybe at 35, you've had 20 years of no. Um, versus at 18 where today there's probably more of an expectation of work. So you've probably got to work a little bit harder on on the self-esteem, the self-image, and countering the negative perceptions they've had with most of the life where, well, like I said, they've been said, told no. Um,
1: it, yeah, it, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you
0: know, it To me it sounds like that, that whilst the challenge is the same, the starting point is going to be different because maybe with a young person they've already kind of went, well, I want that whereas uh, an older person has probably been told, well, no, that's it and nothing else. So the idea of actually breaking out into a, the wider community comes with uh, a fairly substantial amount of anxiety, and possibly this points to maybe something that we, we don't do a lot of, and that is that is workplace counselling or, or work-based therapy where we work with someone to change their anxieties or to, mo- to modify their anxieties around employment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about that uh, identity formation and, um, you know, career identity formation, you know, that's an extra 20 years of, like you said, no, or, you know, works not for me or, you know, whatever it is that um, that we're um, we're trying to change.
0: Yeah, so that possibly suggests that whilst we do discovery of someone that's older, we've actually got to also bring into not just the, the idea of work experience but the idea of doing it with a counselling approach to support that uh, that identity and maybe we explore more about identity rather than employment as, as the starting point. And that goes to the notion of, you know, the self-empowerment um, from my perspective, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but often enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it just seems to me that, you know, you look at the thing about, to me, it, it goes back to that idea of self-actualisation, um, you know, the, the Maslowian uh, pyramid where you reach the top and you're a self actualized person. Well, I personally don't believe anybody can reach the top, but um, and maybe what we're doing is we're starting in the wrong place with someone who's a bit older.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, um, you know, from the causal agency theory perspective, that belief that actions uh, will produce the desired change, uh, which we call action control beliefs. But I think that's the piece that, uh, you know, all that no and all, you know, the over support and then the under support when it comes to the reflection. I think all that is building that belief that my actions aren't going to actually produce the change that I want. I think that takes right. a long time to change.
0: Yeah, and this possibly points to, points to again a flaw in the employment processes, um, because we you know, employment processes tend to be policy driven, um, which is you know, how organisations get paid. So, so maybe what we need is is to work within a system that provides greater flexibility. And certainly, I think that in Australia, if your employment journey is funded by the National Disability Insurance Scheme where well, you do have flexibility around capacity building, core building and uh, core capacity, you, you've probably got a greater opportunity to bring in those counselling supports. And, and, you know, I would say to the, to, um, the person that asked that question, um, the most recently released um, uh, purchasing guide for 2021 actually increases the ability to use counselling supports in employment. So I think there's a there's a kind of a movement in Australia. I mean, are you, are you, do you see that sort of thing in the
1: US? Yeah, I think the US, uh, especially at younger ages, um, like in the kind of transition age in schools, um, systems are really trying to figure out how to work together. So we've got uh, vocational rehabilitation, which is, for anyone with a disability, kind of providing that job coaching and uh, supports around employment. Um, And uh, trying to get um, that agency to work, you know, they usually work kind of, you know, after people get out of school, but really trying to uh, change that, that they're working with uh, the schools. So, you know, in the schools, you've got the counselors, you've got the special education teachers, um, general education teachers that can kind of work work alongside with the VR in, in a kind of coordinated way that are moving everybody together.
0: When, when I interviewed Trevor Parmetta last week on transitions, uh, he talked about the fact that we get it so wrong because it's actually, it shouldn't simply be a transition, but it's multiple transitions. And, and where, in my view, we get this wrong, we still struggle with, is that we start the transition in the last year of school uh, for younger people and for older people, of course. It kind of doesn't happen for a lot of them. So it, it illustrates that that the idea of, of working in this area, we need to start this a lot earlier, we need to make this a part of the school curriculum so that the transition actually starts maybe at the age of 13 or 14. And, and weirdly enough, I've just had that opportunity presented to me over the weekend, which I'm going to explore like hell to start it in the first year of high school. Um, what is your research telling you around that? Is it? Is, is I mean, I'm pretty certain it supports that narrative.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, a lot of our research Uh, Well, I mean, you know, so first of all, I'd say that, you know, in causal agency theory uh, and self-determination, we talk about a lot of abilities associated with self-determination, like goal setting, problem solving, decision making, uh, things like that, that are skills that can be developed. But to develop them, you need the opportunity to use them. So it's not something that you can just, you know, as, as the person's getting ready to graduate from high school, like, okay, now go make all your decisions. We don't do that for anybody that's about to graduate. We always give you know, opportunities along the way to develop those skills. And I think it's the same for people with disabilities.
0: Right. In, in the measure I was working on last year, and this is where we, you and I started this discussion a year ago, um, I, I looked at self-determination and defined it as the development of the capacity to act as a causal agent with volition and autonomy in, exercising, in the exercising of choice and control in the pursuit of career and work choices. That, to me, is when I look at that definition, which I still hold, um, Mm -hmm. it just seems to me that we've missed this opportunity because we're not doing this early enough. And by the time Mm -hmm. someone gets to the end of high school, they've been conditioned to either this or that. And choice is maybe something you might get, depending on the sort of support you might get.
1: Yeah, and, and what our research has shown too is we do a lot of self-determination research in schools. And when we, um, you know, when we use the, so there's a companion model to the uh, career design model called the self-determined learning model of instruction um, that, that's used to uh, set and go after learning-based goals. Uh, but when we use that, and we'll use that with people over um, two or three years, we find that in that first year, Self-determination in a lot of cases actually either goes down a little bit or doesn't change, Um, but then uh, starts to go up kind of in in that second year, which really shows us that, you know, self-determination is not something that you just that it takes a while to develop. It's not something that happens just once you turn 18. So I I think that's evidence to support your idea that um, we need to start young.
0: Which which maybe suggests that when you just you said you find that it generally goes down in the first year. Possibly, what's going on there? This is just my random thought. Mm -hmm. Um, Take it or leave it. Um, (laughs) It seems to suggest to me that that the first part of the cycle is potentially breaking the dependence um, on other people to make your choices. And as you break that dependence, obviously you're going to get a little scared, and you might get a bit reluctant, which might be your what you're describing as as the self determination going down or that capacity going down before it comes up and maybe that's the process where if we're giving people some work experience and other experiences where they can start to make decisions and realize the consequences are not that devastating mm-hmm. it gives them maybe that capacity to go you know what I can exercise choice and control which is that maybe that step towards a bit more self-actualization, a bit more of the agentic control.
1: Yeah, yeah, I should say, too, when when we're measuring self-determination, it's the student's perception of self-determination that we're talking about. And so, yeah, I think you're right. And I think a lot of it, uh, you know, during that first year of developing self-determination, you're learning a lot more about what it means to be self-determined and what those self-determined actions are. And so I, I think it might, uh, it might also, you know, part of that might be just as they're learning more about it and recognizing their uh, opportunities um, to, uh, to exercise those skills um, that they may actually realize that they actually, um, you know, ne- needed a more opportunity. Um, and so I, I think some of those younger, uh, lower scores might reflect that too.
0: Which goes to that point that if you don't have the experiences you don't know, you're going to be more reluctant and maybe more anxious about the outcome and possibly less likely to make decisions. Whereas the more you experience, have the positive experiences, you realise that that, that's something you really want. So, consequently, you're probably going to maybe be a little bit more volitional in terms of of taking, acting and, and moving forward. I mean... Clearly, clearly, there's a lot of work to be done here. Evan, hurry up!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can only do so much myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but, and I mean, you know, people like Mike and uh, Mike Weimer and Kerry Shoger, like they've they've been researching this for thirty years. Like, like we've got a really strong foundation to build on. But you're well, right; there's still a lot to be done.
0: I mean, Trevor said the other day, he said, Mike just didn't invent this himself. He said, I started this in the 60s and there were people before me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it really illustrates that as much as, we, much as we, we're doing this, we need more people to do it. We need people to actually do it on the ground to actually give us more evidence to look at so that support, it supports or doesn't support a certain direction in the development of the theory and the evidence.
1: Yeah, and that's really where, where I want my research uh, to go and where it's kind of heading is really focusing more on community settings and just understanding, you know, both how, how people are promoting self-determination and how we can um, educate supporters to um, provide a context where those opportunities and supports are available to people.
0: Right. Let's come back to the two models we're talking about, the, the career design and the, the, the learning model. How do we integrate them into practice in, in reality when practice itself in the field, and particularly working with older adults, is something of a messy, uh, a messy experience? I mean, it's never linear, it's never easier. So how do we, how do we integrate these so that we can well, obviously move towards better outcomes?
1: Yeah, um, and so we're, uh, we've actually been doing some pilots in some community settings to, to really try to figure out the, the most effective ways. But, I mean, in, in general, I, I think it's really about, uh, one, being sure that people are, have the opportunity to express their self-determination, uh, to make decisions and solve problems and set goals, and that those goals and decisions are honored and supported um, as, as a first step. Uh, and so I, I, you know, for that, I I think we can, we can do a lot of training to just help people. I I think there's a mindset shift that needs to happen from a more caregiving kind of role to really a more, um, supporting self-determination role. And I recognize there's a balance there because we've got to be sure people are safe, but we also, um, need to support people to take risks. So figuring out what that balance is. Um, but you know that kind of supports that doing piece, and and then really um, figuring out a way to build capacity for the re- uh, for the reflecting also.
0: Right. In, in your unpublished narrative, um, you you mentioned possible selves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can uh-huh. you explain
0: a little bit more about the, the possible possible selves intervention?
1: Yeah, and and to be clear, that's actually a chapter that that is actually in press right now. So. I don't want well, I, I, to it. Well, I know. Mine says chapter uh, draft, and you gave it to me a year ago, so come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm always amazed at how long it takes to publish a book. <laughs> but so possible selves is uh, – we're actually doing a study in schools right now where we're combining possible selves and the SDLMI. Uh, Because possible selves is this great structured process that, um, you know, for for people who kind of need to get out of their heads and need a a creative way to kind of think about uh, uh, to kind of think through some of these ideas around their strengths and barriers and things like that. Possible selves uses the image of a tree where, um, so they uh, work uh, through a process with people where they, Uh, really think through what their strengths and interests are and what their opportunities are. Um, And all this is is developed and and also kind of like what, what their roles, you know, some of those uh, larger ideas around roles and goals and things like that. And so those larger ideas become when they get to um, developing their tree, um, some of those larger ideas become the branches of the tree and then, you know, some of the specific interests and strengths are kind of offshoots that kind of support those, uh, those larger kind of goal areas. Uh, and then, then there's, you know, roots and, and then there's um, uh, and then the barriers are, are in that, too. But it is a really nice kind of creative way to go through thinking about a lot of what happens in phase one of the SDLMI, thinking through your interests, your strengths, uh, your support needs. Uh, and, and, and things like that. So, so this potentially points to the idea
0: of using mind mapping live with your clients when you're doing this. I mean, I use mind mapping to throw ideas out of my head and I find it very, very effective. So, and that's a simple tool that, that most people could probably have on their iPad or something like that. So it, it's... Again, it, it, it illustrates there are other possibilities, of ways of doing that. I mean, that's a particularly good one. At the end of the day, it's, it, it ultimately is, is another version of a mind mapping. And that's to my way of thinking. But it's something you don't see used very often in the discussion around career design um, or even discovery for that matter
1: yeah and 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 to me it's such a critical component too that I you feel you've really got to know yourself well to kind of start that process
0: right and and weirdly enough i've just had this weird vision of all the graphs we created person-centered planning but but again you know the employment process and certainly the the customized employment process is really person-centered planning applied to employment and this is another tool we can add to it and and I'm starting to see that. And in the area of self determination, I mean, at the end of the day, everything is about self determination. It's about taking control, exercising choice and control. And how do we get people that have not had that or that capacity to exercise it, to actually exercise it in the pursuit of employment?
1: Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know people have that capacity, and and it's just you know giving them the opportunity to recognize recognize that they have it and to build on it.
0: Right, so going forward, where are we going with self-determination or self-empowerment in the employment field? What are you seeing um, as the next steps for you guys?
1: Uh, So I think for us, you know, we've done a lot of the theoretical work and we've done some uh, pilot projects, um, smaller kind of, you know, focused on agencies and stuff. But uh, I, I really think we need to do some more systems kind of work um, so we need larger studies. We really need to think through how all of the different I mean, I think support um, supporting uh, the support system for uh, adults with intellectual disability is really complex and trying to figure out um, who, you know, who's best positioned to like lead a process like like the career design model or, you know, who. Like, how, how do we train the different people, like the direct support workers? Um, and, you know, just trying to figure out how everybody kind of fits into that and works together in a coordinated way to support the person and their outcomes.
0: Right. So there's really, it really is an organizational approach. So if, if you don't have all the, the elements in your organization to do this, it's it's probably not going to succeed to the degree it should if we don't yeah. actually have people properly trained with the right knowledge and the right supports to actually facilitate that journey, um, the journey in my mind to self-empowerment, um, which will underpin a successful employment outcome.
1: Yeah. And it's really exciting for me uh, as from a research standpoint that, you know, a lot of this work has been done in schools where at least we know, um, and we know that the teachers have daily contact with people and we know that who the team of supporters are and they're in the building most of the time. Uh, going to a, com- a community-based model where you know, people may have weekly or monthly contact and uh, you know, just really figuring out what all that looks like in a really complex system, I think is, is exciting. Right. And and
0: that goes to the point that that most supports today or most organisations are moving out into the community. We're getting away from the idea of institutions and buildings and and everything is being done in the community. So it it really highlights the importance of organisations ensuring that their staff have have the knowledge and the support to acquire that knowledge and then the capacity to actually use it in community settings. And, and I guess that's where we'll get the evidence of what works, what doesn't work and and the next step forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, community settings, and I would go farther to say integrated community settings too. So people out just, you know, with people with and without disabilities doing what they doing, what they want to do. Right. And this is the idea that, that if you, if,
0: for finding employment for people with disabilities, it should be in organisations that reflect the community rather than simply putting everybody with a disability in one organisation and everybody that has this over there, which is not reflective of society.
1: Yeah, and I I think we've shown pretty clearly that from a self-determination standpoint, that model doesn't work very well.
0: Right, and and I think that, um, and I can remember years ago when uh, Walgreens started off their process of... um, uh, employing people with a disability in their warehouse, uh, and it illustrated that it, it changed the capacity of everyone in the, in the in the warehouse, not simply people with a disability. It, it from memory, it improved uh, output by about forty percent across the board. Hmm. You've probably not (laughs) heard that example. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's really interesting. I mean, look, years ago I had a friend who owned owned seven restaurants in Canada and um, uh, he primarily uh, employed anybody, but he had um, uh, 130 people with disabilities and his his best chefs were people with disabilities um, because they just found phenomenal accommodations, which they developed themselves. So, you know, I think what we really need to be doing is is using the, the tools we have to create employment in broad settings where that reflect the community.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that it really is that common interest. So, you know, if people with disabilities love to cook or love to work in restaurants and you know they're employed by people who do too. Like we figure out the supports when that common interest and common passion is shared. And I think that's something that's been missing. Yeah, I I,
0: um, I met a young man a few years ago in Vermont, and uh, he uh, was working in one of the big outdoor stores, and um, well, he'd got the job himself. And his mother turned up and said to the manager, "Well, hang on, my son has you know Down syndrome. I mean, what accommodations do you need?" And I heard something I'd never heard in my life. The, the guy that worked there, he said, I have 40 different people here. And I have 40 different ways of working with them. I don't need any any accommodations, but your son is just one of 40 people that need something different to work here. And I <laughs> thought, wow, okay, well, I'm all for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we just we might finish up here. Um Anything you anything you should you'd like to say to people that are trying to do this in the field with older um, participants? What what's the key takeaway they should know working with older participants?
1: Uh, well, first uh, first I'd say th- thanks for having me on the podcast and to people that are listening that are working with older people. Thank you for doing that work. It, I, I think it's it's critical. Um, but I think the most important thing is to really start just developing the opportunities for people to make decisions and set goals and really start talking about what are your goals? What do you want to do? Um, and giving people, uh, supporting people to have the experiences uh, that they need to make more informed decisions. Uh, it's okay to fail. We all learn more when, from failing, but to really take that time when someone doesn't meet a goal to really reflect on why. Right.
0: All right. Well, Evan, been brilliant. Uh, I have this horrible feeling my neighbour is now mowing the lawn. <laughs> I can hear a mower. So that's probably a beauty signal. beauty of
1: working from home. Yeah, it is. It's,
0: it's the, the signal to stop, I think. Thank you very much for your time. It's been very illustrative. Um, I'm looking forward to having another conversation with you. Um, and thank you and enjoy your evening. Yes, thank you. This was fun. Not a problem, We'll do it again. Okay. Thanks, my friend. Bye. (laughs) Bye. And thank you, everyone. I hope you've got something from that. Uh, If you have any follow-up
1: questions, by all means, email me. Thank you.